0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
1: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
2: Oh uh, wait, you're listening. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. All right. <clears throat> you're listening, listening to
3: Radio Lab.
2: Radio Lab From WNY yep. <laughs>
3: I'm
0: Lulu Miller. This is Radio Lab. And today we're gonna start with Lulu. <laughs> I'm just uh, I'm just recording your furious typing. <laughs> 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 A very busy photo editor.
3: My
4: name is Kainaz Amaria, and I am the visuals editor at Vox.com.
0: Are you exhausted? Were you up late? Uh, yeah, I
4: gotta say I'm not uh, very lucid. So I,
0: I caught her in this kind of leery moment because the afternoon before, January 6th, she had been sitting in her DC apartment doing her visuals editor thing. TV on. We were covering the vote count. Watching the live feed of the Senate floor. And we knew that the the
4: protest was happening. Keeping an eye on the photos coming in through Twitter. Crowds getting closer and closer to the Capitol building. Through the wires. Barriers being torn down.
0: And at some point when she was looking at the TV.
4: The live feeds shut off. There was just a title slide. Congress is temporarily out of session.
0: As we now know, this was the moment that the people outside the capital got in. right? And suddenly Kainaz is staring down this vortex of photos coming in.
4: Thousands of images.
0: Damn, and is it really? It's like thousands? Yeah. Photos of broken glass, smoke, angry faces, and her job is to start picking the very small fraction of them that will make it to our eyes.
4: And actually the first image that Really stopped me in my tracks was a pro Trump supporter with a flag standing on the staircase inside the Capitol, and it's from a really low angle. And there's a look in his face. I'm not sure if he's cross eyed or there was a flash, um, but there is a feeling in that photograph of w- we are here now. Mm. I mean, you know, good images show you what's happening. Great images have metaphor and make you feel what's happening and put you in that moment as if you're there. And that was the first photograph I saw that made me feel worried for the people in the building.
0: So she decided to run that one because she thought it gave audiences a clear sense of what was really going on.
4: But, you know, picture editing is very subjective you know there is this element of my own filter
0: that filter is something kainaz talks about a lot in her work she writes and speaks beautifully about how if you want to see deeper into a photo you need to think about that filter ask yourself who put this photo in front of me what do they want me to see how am i implicated in what i'm seeing And she says that that day, her admittedly subjective filter was trying to show the rest of us an accurate range of what was going on and also
4: what it feels like to be there.
0: So she said no to tons of photos that were too blurry, too busy.
4: You know, your eye doesn't have any place to land.
0: And yes, to this very small handful
4: that she thought captured the feeling. Men scaling the walls, congressional members taking cover, people looting the Capitol but feeling completely okay with having their picture taken and smiling in a sense of like, there was no fear of consequences for them.
0: And then... This one image came to her attention.
4: I did have one slight hesitation of um, the police drawing guns so close to a protester's face. Mm. Um, Is this the one that, it's the
0: three policemen, two of them seem to be pointing the the gun just a foot or so away from this guy whose face through a broken window? Is it that one? Yeah, or less than that. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, really close. And it struck Kainaz in that great image way.
4: It made her feel. The closeness of that moment was was really strong. And it gave a sense of how dangerous this was. It's a moment captured in time that's just before something, which gives you that sense of tension and fear.
0: And the true and sense of, yeah, I guess, like, no one knowing how this is about to go down.
4: Exactly. But... On the other hand, I mean, what if this was the moment right before that man died? And you didn't know yet? I did not know yet, but what if the family saw this photograph?
0: Right. Uh, and is the moment right before potential unknown? But if a person's living, is that, is that a, it's like an ethical call versus a legal call? Like if, if, if the person were dead, that would be something you couldn't do or couldn't do without permission, is how do the rules work right there?
4: Yeah, I mean, the, this is the thing with ethics, right? <laughs> uh, there are <laughs> there are no rules. Yeah. You, there's conversations.
0: Kaina said she had a lot of conversations about that image with her team, with herself. And eventually?
4: I felt that his face was sufficiently um, sort of ambiguous. She decided to publish it. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Are there images you think just shouldn't be shown that
4: we shouldn't see? Um, It depends on the story. It depends on the time. And that's why I think there are no um, black and white lines.
0: Talking with Kainaz made me look at all the images that have been coming in the past few days with new questions, I guess. And it also got me thinking about this piece that Jad did a while ago that is about those lines that crawls under them, twirls them, throws them in a blender, all toward this question of what is okay to see and who should really be deciding that. And I'm going to just play it for you now.
2: Okay, so here's how I got
3: to you. Okay.
2: I have a a former producer and now a good friend, Pat Walters. Oh, yeah. You know Pat.
3: Yes. We corresponded and then he came to see me speak in San Francisco.
2: Yes, and it was based on something he saw you talk about, which is why I'm now contacting you.
3: Interesting. Okay.
2: Hey, I'm Chad Abumrad. I'm Robert Kulwich. This is Radio Lab. And today, a story about a set of Pictures. Pictures. And a, a, a set of questions about those pictures regarding who gets to see the pictures and who gets to decide who gets to see the pictures. Do we
1: get to see the pictures?
2: Well, that's kind of the question, so <laughs> I'm not going to answer that yet. Um, to, but I, I should say that there are some moments in this story that get a little, what's the word? Heavy. Heavy, yeah. So be forewarned. But we'll start with the picture taker.
3: My name is Lindsay Adario and I'm a photojournalist.
2: She's been covering war for the last 15 years.
3: I've done military embeds, infantry units, patrolling, going in house-to-house
2: searches. She's worked in, well, everywhere. Sudan, Libya, Lebanon, Pakistan, a million places. She's been kidnapped twice. She's won a Pulitzer, a MacArthur, and she's been called one of the most influential photographers of the past 25 years. In any case, this particular story, can you set it up a little bit?
3: Sure. Uh, so, in December of 2009...
2: She was I, taking pictures for Time magazine. She was in uh, Afghanistan, Ghazni district, yeah. Helmand province, stationed at a base in the middle of the desert.
3: I was embedded with the medevac team, and their role is to go in and pick up injured troops out of uh, the theater of war.
2: This is a small team of basically helicopter pilots, medics, doctors.
3: Basically, whenever there's an injured soldier... These teams are called,
2: whichever team is closest to the injured. We're talking like helicopter dropping into...
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, this is fast. This
2: is so fast. Lindsay had been embedded with this team for a couple of days, and not much was happening.
3: So you're just sitting around, reading magazines, and then rereading the same magazines.
2: And one night, really late...
3: I think I was lying in bed, and I was totally like... If I wasn't asleep, I was on the verge of sleep. When they, someone ran and was like... There was an Alpha.
2: Alpha is like
3: Alpha means the most gravely wounded Like you have seconds to get there I mean it's it's life or death
2: So she grabs two cameras, her helmet, body armor Runs out to the Blackhawk
3: I strap myself in and we take off And I think it was about a two minute flight Which is so fast And I remember I was shooting the fields as we flew in Because I was trying to focus and see what I can see Luckily, they had lent me a set of night vision goggles, which was really nice to the military because you can't see anything without them in the middle of the night because they are using night vision, so they don't ever turn on the light.
2: So if you were to look through the camera directly, you would see... Nothing. Just blackness.
3: Nothing. So what you do for a photographer is you put the night vision goggles in front of the camera lens so it looks green. It's fluorescent green.
2: Does that mean that the picture you get is green? Yes. So they fly for two minutes through the pitch black... Land the helicopter. She has no idea where.
3: And everything is happening extremely fast. I'm trying to focus as I'm looking out the helicopter door. And suddenly in my viewfinder, I see a man sort of wrapped, I think he was wrapped in a blanket. And he's, uh, he gets put right in front of me on the floor of the, of the Black Hawk. The first thing I thought is, I think he's already dead. He seemed completely unresponsive, and he seemed so young. I just remember looking at his face and thinking, God, what are we doing here?
2: Within seconds, they're airborne again, flying back to the field hospital. Lindsay takes pictures on that brief flight back, grainy, fluorescent, green images of the medics tending to the soldier, checking his vitals.
3: We land at the field hospital.
2: They rushed him on a stretcher into the hospital tent.
3: And the whole team of medics, Navy nurses, the anesthesiologists, everyone is there. They carry him inside and put him immediately on the table, uh, cut his clothes off. They're cutting his pants off, um, open up his shirt. And the room starts filling up with everyone because everyone has heard that there's an alpha. And so troops come in from across the base, sort of in support.
2: She says within minutes, the room went from just a handful of people, five, six, to a dozen 20
3: and it's you can hear a pin drop i mean the room is silent except for the doctors you know they're trying to resuscitate him he had lost i think eight or nine pints of blood they're bringing in blood they're bringing in all sorts of things and um i
2: are you shooting this whole time
3: Well, yeah, of course. You know, I'm basically trying to be invisible because it's so sensitive to be a photographer in that situation. What I do, I don't shoot like bang, 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 you know, I shoot one frame and then I put my camera down and I shoot another frame. Because you can hear the click of the shutter and it is like exponentially louder than normal in a situation like that.
2: did you get did anyone look give you a look of like back off well at
3: one point i was shooting for probably i don't know five or six minutes maybe and an officer walked over to me and he said hey stop photographing and yeah and i put the camera down and i looked at him and i said i have permission
2: she had worked all that out beforehand as part of the conditions of her embed,
3: We had had all these conversations, you know, what happens in the case of this? What is my access? What can I do?
2: But at this point, she says, uh, the room was full of people from across the base who didn't know any of that, didn't know who she was, that she had permission, and so she was sort of at this fork in the road. There were those, like that officer, who clearly felt put the camera down, stop.
3: Obviously, this is not the time to argue or to be disrespectful, so I didn't say anything else. I put the camera down.
2: But she says the moment she did that. Several
3: other troops said no. Let her shoot. This has to be documented.
2: Oh, that's interesting. So you have one guy who says, you can't take a picture of this. Right. Almost like anything but this. right? And another guy is like, no, this especially.
3: Right, right. First of all, the guy who said no was being productive. It made perfect sense for me but i think the guys who who stood up and said this has to be documented i think at some point everyone realized like look this war is not going away we are losing so many lives and limbs and and no one is seeing it
2: and keep in mind this is 2009 this is just the tail end of a 18-year ban where the news media couldn't even photograph military coffins In any case, the officer let it go. Lindsay continued to take pictures for about another 20 minutes. She took pictures of the doctors cutting open the boy's chest, massaging his heart.
3: At some point, I remember someone, one of the doctors looked up and said, does anyone else have any suggestions, basically, for how to save him? And everyone said no, and they sort of disconnected the, I mean, he died people were looking down, and then they were looking at each other, and someone went to go get a flag, an American flag, to drape over his body. And I continued photographing, and there was a moment where uh, the whole room was silent, and people stood around his body, draped with a flag, uh, and said a prayer. That, to me, is one of the most powerful images that came out of this whole series.
2: There's this old idea in photography called the decisive moment that the world is filled with these far-off realities, but every so often a photograph can capture a moment that, boom, takes you there. This is one of those photos. In the picture, you see all these men and women standing in kind of a loose semicircle. Some of them still have their uh, blue surgical gloves on. They look totally spent. They're all looking in different directions, and they all look like they're not even there, like they're totally lost in their own thoughts. Their attention is clearly... Inwards. Yeah.
3: I'm sure all those troops were like, God, it, that could have been me. Why couldn't we save him? What are we doing here in Afghanistan? Is this war worth it? And to read the expressions on their faces, like, it, it's even, you can be at war as a journalist, but never actually get to the heart of the war because we don't have access or people don't open up. And I felt like I really had reached, a, a, like, the crux of the war. Interesting. It was war.
2: You'd seen an essence of something. Yeah. But then came a problem. Any photos that she had taken that included that soldier's face or any other identifying marks like tattoos, and he did have tattoos, according to the rules of her embed, she couldn't use those photos without the soldier's permission. Right. And you never got to speak to him. No. So was it... Days later, weeks later, months later, where you began to ask yourself, can I no. who do I talk to? It was minutes later. Minutes I mean later. it's
3: it's the military does not let a journalist cover something like this without coming directly to that person. And so literally like I Followed uh, the young man's body out to the morgue and they had to walk him outside. And I remember it was the moon was so bright that night, and I was shooting with the moonlight as he was being carried outside. And then uh, I went back to the tent where I was staying. And within minutes, uh, the military PAO, the Marines, uh, public affairs officers, came and said, uh, you know you can't send those images out without permission from the next of kin.
2: That's the rule. If a soldier is unconscious and then dies before giving permission?
3: I have to then go to the next of kin. And I said, of course, I understand. You know, I'm not doing anything with those photos in that moment. I signed this piece of paper. When I give my word, I keep that word, you know. But then the other side of me was like, Fuck, you know, in Vietnam, no one was signing pieces of paper and in Vietnam, no one had to, to to go to the next akin before they published anything. And that's why the American public, I think, rose up against the war in Vietnam because they saw the most graphic devastating images that were uncensored.
2: So then what do you do in that situ- circumstance? I mean – I imagine you go to the next of kin, right?
3: Well, you're not allowed as a journalist to reach out to the next of kin. They asked me, are you interested in being contacted by the next of kin if they're willing to speak to you?
2: Oh, so you can't even actually call.
3: No, they will not give you the information. But I said, um, you know, of course I would like to be contacted by the next of kin and please pass my information on. And I was sort of just waiting.
2: I mean, at this point, were you thinking the pictures would ever see the light of day?
3: I had no idea. And, um...
2: A few days later...
3: Maybe less than a week.
2: Her embed was over. She was flying to JFK on her way to meet her family for Christmas.
3: And I had voicemails on my telephone. And I listened, and it was his father. And he left me a voicemail, and he said, I understand you were with my son when he died, and I would like to talk to you, and this is my phone number. I sort of choked up just listening to his voice, anticipating how difficult that phone call would be.
2: That phone call when all the fallout is coming up.
4: My name is Lucina Basilico, and I'm calling from my office in Houston, Texas. Radio Lab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org.
2: Science reporting on Radio Lab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science.
0: Lab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café, s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited-time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash radiolab, dot com slash Radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply. Radiolab is supported by Z-Biotics. If you've been looking for some help waking up refreshed after a fun night out, Z-Biotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Z-Biotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow as it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol which is responsible for rough mornings after go to zbiotics.com/radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use radiolab at checkout zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee if you're unsatisfied for any reason they'll refund your money no questions asked that's zbiotics.com/radiolab and use the code radiolab at checkout for 15% off
2: This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza.
5: Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas.
2: Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krelvich. This is Radio Labs. So, Lindsay Adario, the photographer, has these photos, uh, these intense photos of a soldier dying, but she can't use them without getting permission from the next of kin. Right. A few days later?
3: I had voicemails on my telephone, and I listened, and it was his father.
2: His father's name is Todd Taylor. son's name was Jonathan Taylor. And just to jump ahead for a second, as we were talking about the phone call and the fallout from that phone call, I had all of these questions about what Todd Taylor was thinking, questions about his son, things that Lindsay couldn't possibly answer. So at a certain point in the interview, she just told me.
3: I don't know. I mean, you could maybe interview him.
2: Do you think he would? I mean, is is there any prohibition on me talking to him?
3: Well, I'd be happy to give you some information. I'd love to talk to him. I mean, you can try.
2: Lindsay uh, put us in touch, and I'll just tell you about the visit for a second. Todd Taylor was willing to talk. He had two conditions. One was like if I'm gonna do a story about these photos of his son, I should at least get to know his son a little bit. And the second was that I come down to Florida to meet him and his family personally. The
4: destination is on your left.
2: So I did.
5: Hey. Good morning. Good morning, you?
2: The Taylor family live in a section of Jacksonville that's near a naval base, so there are a lot of military families there. Come on in and meet all the Todd is actually ex-navy himself. <laughs> <laughs> He introduced me to his three giant boxers. No jumping. Or they sort of introduced themselves. And then, I met his daughters.
5: I am Lauren Taylor. I am 16, going on 17.
0: Oh, God. <laughs> you had to add that in.
5: <laughs> my name's Mackenzie Taylor. I'm Jonathan other sister, and I'm 20 years old.
2: That little voice you heard in the background is Easton. He's about two.
1: Hey. That's one of the babies she watches.
5: Hey, handsome.
2: Mackenzie works as a nanny.
5: My name's Paige Larson, I'm Jonathan's stepsister, and I'm 21. My name's Sue Taylor, and I'm um, Jonathan's
4: stepmom.
1: And then, of course... I'm Todd Taylor, I'm Jonathan's dad. Um, We're here in my house in Jacksonville, Florida, and today is Jonathan's birthday. It's April 8th,
2: 2015. So he would have been how old today? 28 years old today. 28. When I got there, they pulled out photo albums of Jonathan, and we all sat at the kitchen table... And looked at pictures Pictures of him as a baby Of course that was very young Toddler This was on the Disney
1: cruise I took him on Adolescent Kennedy Space Center Teenager, you see him running
2: track He liked cross country Going to prom That was Jonathan's girlfriend The thing you notice immediately in all the pictures Yeah, big blue eyes Mm
0: -hmm.
2: He's got these eyes that are not just blue, they're really blue like if you boosted the brightness in Photoshop or something.
5: Yeah, I, forgot, I think we're on vacation here, but...
2: The other thing you notice. Mm-hmm. His
5: facial expressions are really yeah, funny was, in some uh, of these. <clears throat>
2: <throat> he was a big class clown lot of goofy faces.
5: Very goofy. big goofball, yeah. Yeah. Definitely knew how to make anybody laugh.
1: Full of energy, always into stuff. He kept the boys away, too.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, most definitely. made sure if I had boyfriends, he'd call them just to see what grades they had. Really? He would check on their grades? Yeah, kind of give him a little interview. I do remember he was very protective. If I had a crush, he'd be like, oh, no, you're not going to have a crush. No, no boys. There was one time before he left for Afghanistan, like, I really sick with a fever. And I remember him holding my hand just so he could make sure that I was okay and, and took care of me.
2: They told me story after story about how he doted on his sisters, how he loved to read and wanted to become a history teacher after his four years in the Marines. And inevitably, the conversation turned to the day that they found out he died, December 1st, 2009. They get a call from Jonathan's mom um, saying, it's that classic scene, Oh my God, there are two Marines at the door.
5: And we just kind of, like, like left mm-hmm. everything.
2: Sue, Todd, the girls jump in the car, race over.
5: They all wanted to get out. We're like, no, because we didn't really know what was going to happen. So yeah. we made all the girls stay in mm-hmm. the car. And I remember walking in the door, and everyone just had this look on their face, like the world had just ended. and. Um I remember asking what had happened, and my mom had told me that he was gone. And the first thing I did was run to his room because everything was the same before he had left. I remember opening up his closet and um, grabbing one of his shirts and just holding on to it because it still had his scent on it. That night was really hard.
2: One thing that had never occurred to me, totally caught me off guard in, in thinking about those pictures, is that when those Marines came to the door and told them the news, well, they didn't actually give much news. This right here was one of This is what was read. Todd actually read me the circumstances of death statement.
1: Hostile action result of multiple traumatic injuries received as a member of a dismounted patrol that was struck by an I.D. while conducting combat operations in the Helmand province. That was it, on patrol, night patrol. That was all I had. So you didn't know anything? That's it.
2: Jonathan's unit was still in Afghanistan, so he couldn't talk to anyone. He had no clue what happened to his son. So when that casualty assistance officer told him, actually, there was a photographer in the room with your son when he died. Automatically, I was like, I wanted wanted to call her. Earlier in my conversation with Lindsay, I'd asked her, what do you remember of the call?
3: So the call, um, I went to my mother's house in Connecticut and I asked my mother to be left alone, which in a big Italian American family means, it <laughs> <laughs> does not happen it's very not often. a small request. No, she sort of looked at me like, what? And I, I went up into the guest bedroom and I called him. And he picked up, I think he thanked me for calling him. I don't remember exactly what we said, but I said, you know, I was with your son when he died, and I will give you as much or as little information as you want. And he said, I want to know everything. Because I wasn't
1: there. I was here.
3: He said, I want to know every single thing. I want to be with my son.
1: Just to lose him and not be there for him. That's, that was hard. Really hard.
3: And I felt sort of very awkward because I felt like, you know, why was I privy to this moment? Um, and he as the father could not be privy.
1: The most important question to me was, did he suffer? Do you think did he suffer?
3: I said, no.
1: She told me, Miss Taylor, I don't I don't think you suffered. I think he was in
3: shock. I told him everything. How much blood his son lost. Uh, how long did they try to save him? And at some point, I said, look, I have these pictures. I have... All of these pictures I shot everything, and I need your permission to publish the ones that show his face.
1: Oh yeah, she asked me for permission, and uh,
3: he was quiet.
1: I said, um, I told her yes,
3: but but he said, I I can I see them.
1: And I wanted to see him first
3: before I give permission. I want to see every photo, and I said, you know, I'm not sure you want to see these photos because they're graphic. But he wanted to see the out. He wanted to see every photo.
2: All of them. Yeah.
3: Of course, I, we were on the phone. I couldn't show him pictures. And legally, I needed permission from Time Magazine to show him anything because, you know, as a journalist, you can't show anything to anyone until it's published. You don't show people pictures of journalism before you publish them.
2: This is one of those cardinal rules that's drilled into every journalist's head. If you show a subject the raw stuff before it's out there... You're kind of giving up the only independence you've got. That's why she says, ordinarily,
3: I would never, ever, ever
2: show. Just to play it out for a second, if he, to be cynical about it, if you show him the pictures, he might take away permission that he might have otherwise give you. Yes,
3: exactly. Exactly. You can say as a publication, no, I won't show you those pictures before you have to just say yes or no. Do you give your permission?
2: Like, in a way, if you get down to it, I feel like one of the fundamental layers here is just like a question of whose rights when it comes to that information is more important. I could hear an argument that says, the battle is important, it was authorized by public figures, it is carrying America's message into the world, and shouldn't Americans see what goes on? Yeah, but I could, I could hear an argument that says, shouldn't a dad be able to protect who sees his son in that situation? Yeah. In any case, Lindsay called her editors at Time. They had a series of conversations that went all the way up to the editor of Time.
3: We had a very intense conversation. And we collectively made a decision to show him the photos.
2: To say that decision was unusual from their perspective would be severely understating it. When I first got these um, from
1: FedEx, I knew they were coming, and I was actually scared to look at them. And I saw my son there, and I just kept looking and, and looking You can see these were the in the medevac when they got him on. You can see the night vision lens. There's Jonathan's body, oh, chest. There's his the face. There's the oxygen. Still has watch on still. See his eyes closed there? That was
0: Yeah.
1: so many hands in there working. You can see they're doing CPR there. Now, here you see right leg is really mangled and broken. That's really why he lost so much blood. It was just all right in here. Some of these pictures are. Well, there's some of them that are
2: really hard to see.
1: Yeah. But even though they show the ugliness of war, I've got a piece of Jonathan. This is is my treasure. Mm. And I'll show you one of the pictures that,
2: to me, it's, it always stands out. You brought up the picture of the prayer. All those people standing in a semicircle with faraway eyes. Right here. You just see a little different in their faces here. I
1: mean, it meant something. He was somebody. He yeah. wasn't just a number.
2: Todd said he wanted people to see this picture and the others. To convey what's happening over there. This is going on every day. And he says for him, it's not a political thing. You can feel however you want to feel about the wars we're in. For him, it's about people seeing what is actually happening.
1: I mean, I wanted to let people see the sacrifices these boys do.
2: It took Todd and his family over a month to decide what to do about those pictures, whether to grant time, permission to run the photos or not. He says ultimately he called Jonathan's mother over. Her and her husband. And um, my wife and I, we all discussed it.
3: And ultimately, he said no. And it was a lot of back and forth.
2: He said no to showing any pictures at all.
3: Well, he can't say no to any pictures because... Oh, because there is
2: pictures without the face. Yeah,
3: exactly. He said no to any pictures with the face or identifying marks.
1: We decided really that uh, we didn't want these pictures to get out um, for fear that his sisters, somehow they would get back to them. And that was the big thing. I didn't want them to be able to see this yet. As their dad, I want to protect them from seeing certain things. And so,
2: we decided not to do it. Time had planned to run a whole photo spread on the medevac team trying to save Jonathan Taylor's life. But since they now couldn't use most of those photos, they had to make the photo spread more general.
3: What had been the basically the death of a soldier ultimately became a photo essay on the medevac team, and those pictures were maybe two pictures or three pictures in that spread but they were not the focus
2: the prayer photo is in the new spread because in that photo uh, you can't see his body because it's covered with a flag there are no identifying marks but somehow in that context it's it's not got the same impact weirdly because you're seeing the after without the before it, exactly and and you know um let's see here Todd but... showed me. The original photo spread because they had sent that to him. You know, again, super unusual. So this is the um, this is the feature they wanted to do. Yeah, you see the pictures
1: are so much more clear. This is kind of the layout it's going to be. took 29
2: minutes, graphing it out, minute by minute. This whole process. So there you see all the before pictures that lead up to the prayer, and what it seemed to me is like if you don't see all that stuff, the 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 wounds and the blood and the tenderness as they tried to comfort him and then the emptiness they feel when they couldn't save him. Like, if you don't see all that, you're not really standing with them in that prayer at the end. You're still seeing them across the space. Yeah, that's interesting. In the original spread, you are there in that room. They did a a great job, Mm -hmm. you know. It's really powerful. And I couldn't help but think that, like, maybe this would have created that conversation that Lindsay talked about just a tiny bit. I'm like, how weird that I'm one of the only people to see it. And to know that, like, I, the only reason I can describe it to you is because I'm on the radio.
3: You know, I will always feel like, journalistically, we, we sacrifice, you know, we did not tell the story as powerfully as we could have, but we had integrity, and I feel like we treated everyone with respect, and we kept our word.
2: Lindsay and Todd now stay in touch over email once or twice a year. And in terms of keeping your word, Todd has made a deal with his daughters that they can see the pictures when they turn 21. But interestingly, um, the three of them don't agree as to whether they want to. Uh, Paige and Mackenzie, who are about to turn 21, say they don't want to see the pictures.
0: I just couldn't handle it.
2: Yeah, do you
5: feel sad? Yeah, I think for me, I just don't want to see him in pain, Mm -hmm. you know. That's Mackenzie. Yeah, my thing is I just don't want to see it because I'd rather just remember him in one piece how he was. I'm just too sensitive.
2: That's Paige. Now, Lauren, the youngest. For me. She says she needs to see those pictures.
5: Because I want to know what he went through, and I like constantly knowing things, and I don't like things being kept from me. And I just want to. I guess I just want a visual of. It
2: sounds like a- She says she knows he's gone, but she still somehow needs proof.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Not that it happened, she knows it happened. But so it feels real. Okay, so um, big thanks to Pat Walters, um, Kira Pollack, the Taylor family, and of course, Lindsay Adario. She has a book out now called It's What I Do, which is sort of a memoir about her war photography and how it's changed her life. And uh, that book is filled with her photography. Anything like the ones we didn't see? Well, there's some amazing pictures in there, but nothing like like these ones. Mm. So yeah, that's it. Um, All right. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. Thanks for listening.
0: And Lulu here again. Big, big, big thanks to Kainaz Amaria for making time for me during a really busy moment. To find out what she's up to, you can follow her on Twitter. And I highly recommend you listen to her interview on On the Media, where she talks about a really troubling double standard in a lot of U.S. newsrooms. Big, big thanks to her. That's it. Goodbye. Thank you for listening.
5: Hi, it's Caroline from Nashville, Tennessee. Radiolab was created by Jad Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gable, Matt Kielty, Tobin Lowe, Annie McInnes, Sarah Kari, Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima Oliyai, Sarah Sandbach, and
0: Johnny Moans. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris.
1: This is Ira Flatow, host of Science Friday. For over 30 years, the Science Friday team has been reporting high quality science and technology news, making science fun for curious people by covering everything from the outer reaches of space to the rapidly changing world of AI to the tiniest microbes in our bodies. Audiences trust our show because they know we're driven by a mission to inform and serve listeners first and foremost with important news they won't get anywhere else. And our sponsors benefit from that halo effect. For more information on becoming a sponsor, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org.